The sermon text for today is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 932. Listen as I read God's word. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood, let's ambush some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us, we will share all the loot. My son, Do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be together with you today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And you may be wondering why, if we are doing a series in Psalm 1, the message text was from Proverbs 1. And that is because we are, instead of taking fragments of sentences from Psalm 1 and looking at them, uh, we're going to be looking at some additional sort of uh, other passages that are supplements, uh, the secondary passages that can help fill in our understanding of Psalm 1. And today, uh, we're going to be looking in part at Proverbs chapter 1. As Matt said earlier, one of our goals as a church during this series is to memorize Psalm 1, and it's not going to be maybe as bad as you think. It's only six verses, okay? So this is doable, uh, especially since we have about nine weeks to do it. So the cards that we passed out are a, a tool to be able to help you in the context of your own home. Maybe you want to do that with your family. Maybe you do that uh, by yourself. You keep that someplace that's visible and in front of you, and you uh, read that uh, a couple times a day in order to, uh, to do that. Another thing we're going to be doing as a church family is every Sunday we're going to be uh, saying Psalm 1 together. So what I want to do is invite you to stand with me And we are going to uh, read Psalm 1 together, and we're going to do this week after week after week. And uh, by the end of it, our prayer is that this would be something that, as the psalmist talks about, that uh, we would be meditating on this day and night, and that it would uh, become a part of who we are, and we internalize it. So uh, the words are going to be up on the screen, so I invite you to follow along with me as we say Psalm 1 together. So... Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. 
They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Would you remain standing as we pray? Lord, we ask that over these next number of weeks that you would bury the message of Psalm 1 deep inside of our hearts. God, we pray that you would help us to see the beauty that is here. We pray that you would help us to understand and to catch a vision and to delight in your instruction and following your ways. Lord, help us now, we ask. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and at work among us, especially right now in these moments. Lord, help us to be attentive listeners. Lord, give me uh, the ability to communicate clearly. And we ask, Lord, that as we look at Psalm 1 here today, and as we look at Proverbs chapter 1 as well, that you would help us uh, first and foremost to see Jesus clearly. Help us understand the magnitude of what he has done for us, and would you help us to leave here changed people who are more and more like the tree that's planted by streams of water. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're looking at Psalm 1 and what the Bible has to tell us about a life of flourishing, a life of prosperity. That's why we've titled the series, The Prosperous Life. And as we begin to talk about a little bit last week, every single one of us desires a life of flourishing. Every one of us desires to have a life of abundance, to have a life of prosperity, to have a life of blessing. And Psalm tells us, Psalm 1 tells us where that blessing, that flourishing actually comes from. And it also tells us something about what it looks like for us to actually experience that in our lives. But as you'll notice in verse 1 here, before telling us where flourishing is found, Psalm 1 tells us where flourishing is not found. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one, flourishing is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, who does not stand in the way that sinners take, who does not sit in the company of mockers. So someone begins in actually kind of a negative way, telling us where true flourishing is not found. And I'll be honest with you, this week I, I really struggled because I wanted to put the sort of the, the essence of this, I wanted to frame this positively. And then I decided uh, I'm not smarter than the Bible, so maybe we should just look at it for what it is, okay? Uh, so I think it, it's important for us because this is how we have Psalm 1. Let's just sort of sit with what this teaches us and uh, look closely at Psalm 1, verse 1 here today. We're told that true flourishing is not found in the company of those who reject God. The language that's used here in verse 1, these, uh, the, the titles that are used here of the wicked person, the sinners, and the mockers, uh, this is language that's used often in the book of Proverbs, and it's used most basically to describe a person who does not love God or delight in his instruction. These words are used to describe a person who has rejected God and his instruction. And what this is telling us is that flourishing cannot be found in the company of those who reject God. True and lasting flourishing cannot be found in the presence of, by listening to the voice of, by following on the path of those who do not love God and obey his instruction. 
Here's what we know to be true. The company that we keep will direct the course of our lives. I think we all know this to be true, that the company we keep, the people, the relationships that we have in our lives, it will determine the course of our lives. The voices that we listen to, not just the voices that we hear audibly, but the voices that we listen to, those will shape the direction of our lives. I've heard it put like this, we are the product of our closest three relationships. The three people in our lives that we have let closest to us, the people that have the most influence over us relationally, the people whose voices we trust and voices we listen to, those people help shape us in a deep and profound way into the people that we are. The voices that we listen to will shape the direction of our lives. If you don't know this about me, I like uh, watching crime-solving documentaries. You might not also know that I'm an Enneagram number five, like off-the-charts investigator, so that may be why I enjoy these sort of crime documentaries. But as, as I watch these, uh, you sort of notice some patterns that take place about people, and one of the patterns that you notice is, uh, especially when there's a young person who commits a crime of some sort, uh, the parents or people in their life will often say, you know, they were such a wonderful young person. And then one day they got into the wrong crowd. They began to hang out with a certain group of people and all of a sudden, over time, they began to completely change. And this person became capable of things that we never thought they were capable of before. And it's in part because of the shaping effect that those relationships have. You know, you've uh, maybe experienced this in your own life, you maybe have watched a sibling or watched a friend of yours who was very close to you, who you knew very well, all of a sudden they start hanging out with a new group of people, and all of a sudden that person isn't the same person that they were before. They're deeply influenced and shaped by those relationships. Some of us here uh, bear the pain of watching our children walk away from the Lord because they got into a certain group of people. And now your children have deconstructed their faith or your children have maybe uh, walked away from Christianity altogether, walked away from a relationship with Jesus, all because they began to hang out with the wrong crowd, and those relationships deeply influenced who they are. So we know this to be true, that we are the product of those three closest relationships. We know that the company we keep will shape the direction of our lives. And so the question for us is, what are the voices that we are listening to? What are the voices that we let shape our thinking? And not just our thinking, but let shape our affections and what we love and what we delight in. So as we think about this today, we're going to be looking in part at Proverbs 1 and as well at Psalm 1 because in some ways we're going to see there's uh, some parallels between the two. So the first thing we're going to do is look at Proverbs 1. And as we look at Proverbs 1, here's what we see. We see uh, this contrast between a person who has to make a, a person has to make a decision of what voice they are going to listen to. And it's either the voice of the parents, who here represent wisdom. The parents here are sort of set out as these sort of ideal parents who represent the fear of the Lord, which the book of Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom itself. So they can listen to the voice of the parents, or they can listen to the voice of this gang. And that's the contrast, that's sort of the, the decision that this person is faced with. Now, there's a lot this here in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 1, but what I'd just like to focus on here today is that there are real pressures and real incentives to following the voice of the gang. There's real pressures that the son faces to following the voice of the gang. 
there is an implicit kind of pressure that the son faces in that he is outnumbered. And just the fact that he's outnumbered, that there's this one son who's in the company, who's being uh, recruited in a way by this sort of gang of people, there's a vulnerability in being alone by yourself. And on the other side of that, there's a safety in being in the numbers, being a part of that gang. And so just by virtue of being alone, this son faces a kind of implicit pressure to join the gang. But there's also an explicit pressure too. In verse 10, the parent says, my son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. Now that language, uh, the word entice is a word that means to, uh, to pressure someone with an incentive. So you're enticing someone, you're pressuring them by holding out an incentive before them. And we see the, the gang doing this. They're saying, hey, come join us. Here's all these wonderful benefits of, of what it looks like to be a part of this community. Don't you want this? And if you don't want this, why not? What's wrong with you? And by holding out all these benefits, they're applying a kind of pressure on the son to join them. So there's a real pressure to listening to the voice of the gang, but there's also real incentives to listening to the voice of the gang as well. There's material incentives. Listen, the gang says in verse 11, they say, come along with us. Let us lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our house with plunder. So there's a very clear material benefit to joining with, listening to the voice of the gang and joining with them on their path in the, the way that they choose to live. There's also a social incentive, a social benefit as well. Listen to verse 14. Cast lots with us. We will share all the loot. And they hold out this picture of this sort of loving and equitable and egalitarian community where we all share in this together. This is, this is us. And it's another way of applying pressure, saying, don't you want this kind of life? What's wrong with you if, if you don't want to be a part of a community like this? So there's real pressures and there's real incentives to listening to the voice of the gang. But then the parent's voice comes in and the voice of the parents essentially says, it may look like listening to the voice of the, of the gang, it may look like following the path of the gang it may look that, like that leads to a kind of flourishing, but don't be deceived, it's a mirage. What they hold out to you as a life of flourishing is not actually a life of true flourishing at all. Now remember, uh, the, the benefits that they held out, <laughs> the material benefits. And I think that the parents would say, okay, yes, you may gain all sorts of material possessions, but what kind of person do you have to become in the process? A person who's jaded? A person who's cynical? a person who can look at another human being who is innocent, who's done nothing wrong, you view them as your enemy, you dehumanize them and are willing to kill them in order to get a few material possessions? Yes, you might gain all sorts of material possessions, but what kind of person do you have to become in the process of getting there? It's not actually true flourishing. It's not what it looks like. And then also, they hold out this, uh, the, the, the incentive, the benefit of this loving community, <laughs> And the parents would say, okay, so let me get this straight. You think that these people who don't care about human life, who are willing to kill someone in order to get like a material possession, you think that these people who don't actually care about human life are all of a sudden going to care about your human life? You think, that, you think that you're safe with them. 
They've demonstrated that they don't care about human life. What makes you think that you're so special that they're all of a sudden going to care about your human life? Right? So what the parents are doing is essentially saying to them, it may look like this is a path towards flourishing, but you have to understand it's not what it seems. Verse 18, they say, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. So the parents recognize, they say, yes, there are real incentives. There are real pressures to listen to the voice of the gang. But in the end, the path of life that they are holding out for you does not actually lead to true flourishing. They're setting a trap only for themselves. So that's Proverbs 1. Listening to the voice of the gang or listening to the voice of the parents. And now back to Psalm 1, where we notice that there is a similar contrast between the person who listens to the voice of Yahweh, who listens to the voice of the Lord through his instruction, who delights in the instruction of God, the voice of God, and the person who listens to the voice of what we can call the crowd, which is those who are described here as the wicked and the sinners and the mockers. So whose voice do you listen to? Look at the verbs here in verse 1. Blessed are, is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So those, th- those three verbs there, uh, to walk, to stand, and to sit, those look like sort of just generic you know, verbs to us that don't seem like they're packed with a whole lot of meaning of any kind. But taken together, what those verbs describe is a person who's not just a casual acquaintance with the mockers and the sinners and the wicked person. What this is describing is a person who has joined their lives together with those who do not love God or obey his instruction. So the language of walking together and sitting together and standing together is, a, is language that's intentionally crafted to communicate a kind of relational intimacy that exists between the, the person, the, the blessed person, and uh, this crowd of people. It's used to describe a kind of relational intimacy. And so as we look at this passage, we see these verbs, we see that this is uh, sort of, what do you call it, metaphorical language that's describing someone who has given this life-shaping influence to those who reject God. That's what we see in Psalm 1. And I think what we should pause and notice here is that the same things that are at work in Proverbs 1, the pressures and the incentives of listening to the voice of the crowd, I think it's safe to assume that those same pressures and incentives are at work in Psalm 1 with the crowd, with those that we see there. So there are real pressures and real incentives to following this path towards what, what the Bible says ultimately ends in destruction. And this is, this is true for us. We face those same pressures and those same incentives as well. So think about in the context of your vocation, in your workplace, uh, there are implicit pressures that you face. Most of us who are in the workplace uh, are in an environment or in an organization or on a team where we know that we are outnumbered as followers of Jesus. And there is a kind of implicit pressure with that. You know, uh, none of us want <laughs> to be that guy. None of us want to be that girl. None of us want to uh, make relationships weird. We don't want things to get awkward. And so because we know we're outnumbered, there's a kind of implicit pressure to just 
check your relationship with Jesus at the door. There's a kind of implicit pressure to, you know, just don't go there in any kind of conversation. Even if it's like, you know, this person brought up this subject, you know, just avoid it. You, just, you, you don't want to rock the boat. You just want to blend in. Just check your relationship with Jesus at the door. There's a kind of implicit pressure for that, knowing that you're outnumbered in your workplace. There's also a kind of explicit pressure. You may work for an organization or for a company where you know the kind of culture that they are intending to create. You may know the stated beliefs and values and, and maybe some of the ideological uh, positions that this organization takes, and, and you're, you're sitting there as a follower of Jesus saying, you know, I, I just I can't go there in all these ways, and I know that if other people find out I'm a follower of Jesus, I know if they find out that there are certain beliefs and certain values that I hold based in Scripture, that I'm going to be labeled a fundamentalist. I'm going to be labeled maybe an extremist for the things that I believe. And so there is both an implicit and an explicit kind of pressure to just join with the crowd, to just join with, don't, don't be distinctive, don't uh, let your relationship with Jesus influence or inform anything that you really do, just sort of check that out at the door and just come and just sort of blend in, follow the path of the crowd. Now, young people, those of you who are maybe students, because of the, the explosion of social media, I think there are pressures that you are facing that no students in previous generations have faced. It may not be that the pressures themselves are entirely different, but the way that you experience those pressures in our particular cultural environment is like no one has ever experienced before. And you're experiencing all of these pressures in a portion of your life, in a season of your life where you are, uh, this is one of the most formative seasons of your life where you are coming into being your own person. Your identity is now being formed apart from your parents in a way that it never has before. You're coming to learn about who you are and you're becoming the person that you're going to be for the rest of your life. And you're experiencing all of these pressures in the midst of one of these most uh, formative seasons of your life. And so the pressure is real. The pressure is there. The pressure to look a certain way. The pressure to act a certain way, the pressure to be able to play the part, to be able to uh, participate in, in whatever you know, the crowd wants you to do, all of those things, th- there's an enormous amount of pressure that you feel, and it's unrelenting. I think back to, uh, I, I think back to my experience even in uh, like later elementary and early middle school. My family moved to Minnesota in the middle of my fourth grade year, and my dad was a pastor so we moved because my dad got a job here in Minnesota. And so I came in in the middle of fourth grade, which meant that I was like the one who stuck out everywhere because I'm the new kid. And of course, all the teachers called attention to, hey, there's this new kid here. And at the time, I was embarrassed that my dad was a pastor. You know, funny now. <laughs> all the things you tell God you will never do, I've learned. <laughs> God, I will never be a millionaire, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I, was, I was embarrassed that my dad was a pastor and the spotlight was showing on me because I was the new person and all my teachers said, hey, you know, you just moved here. Why did you move here? Well, my dad got a job. Well, what does your dad do? And then everybody knows your dad's a pastor. And I thought it was kind of weird and I was embarrassed about it. And I remember being in that season of my life 
uh, and just feeling desperate to fit in. And looking back at, the, at the, the groups, at the kids that I thought were the cool kids and the reasons I thought they were the cool kids and just the sort of level of desperation for me just to fit in. And I, and I remember the things that, that, that I did to fit in that I look back on and I'm like, why in the world would I have ever compromised in that way to fit in with those kids? But at the time, you're in this most formative season of your life and the pressure to fit in, to look right, to say all the right things, to do all the right things, to be a part of the in crowd, that is a real and enormous pressure. And I didn't even have social media. I didn't have a cell phone in my pocket when I was at school. I didn't have some of the things that make this even more difficult for your generation. And so there's real pressures. There's real uh, both implicit and explicit pressures to, to fit in and just to blend into the crowd and to follow the path of those who do not love God or obey his instruction. And of course, there's real incentives to this as well. In the context of your workplace, there may be uh, financial profit <laughs> incentives. If you just compromise, you can, you know, you can increase your numbers. You can, uh, there may be pay increases for you. There may be uh, <laughs> promotions or maybe raises. There's all sorts of benefits. There's also just the comfort benefit of just, I, I'm a, uh, there's safety in being in numbers. Just being a part of the crowd, not standing out. I'm not the object of, you know, people aren't looking at me as some different or weird person. There's safety in that. And there's an incentive uh, for those of you who are younger. Uh, the, the incentive of popularity and to have the, the affirmation of your uh, fellow peer students. To be popular, to be to be well-liked. Those are real pressures and real incentives that you face. And what Psalm 1 tells us is don't be deceived. And we could go through and list any number of different you know, seasons of life or different areas of life where there are those same pressures and those same incentives. But what Psalm 1 tells us is do not be deceived. True flourishing cannot be found by listening to the voice of the crowd. True flourishing will never be found by joining the company, by listening to the voice of, by following the path of those who do not love God or obey his instruction. Now here's where I think it's important for us to kind of uh, land the plane here today. We see in Psalm 1 not only a contrast between a person listening to one of two voices. It certainly is that. On a deeper level, This is a contrast between a person who finds delight in one of two places. There's the person who looks at, who hears the voice of the crowd, who sees the life that the crowd sort of puts out there for them as here's the path towards flourishing. If you just do these things, you'll be happy, you'll be satisfied, you'll flourish, you'll experience a life of abundance and prosperity. There's the voice of the crowd who promotes that sort of Uh, picture, that sort of vision of what the flourishing life is, and one person sees that and says, that's what I want. They delight in that, and their heart leads them down the path of following them, which Psalm 1 says ultimately leads to destruction. So there's a person who delights in the way that leads to destruction, and on the other hand, there's a person who we're told delights in the instruction of the Lord, who delights in the law of the Lord. Now, my guess, this is just a shot in the dark. My guess is that not many of us have ever <laughs> used the word law and delight in the same sentence, especially when, you know, thinking about the Old Testament. I think that probably most of us are somewhat confounded by Psalm 119. 
where the author spends 176 verses just like riffing on how great the law of God is. And we're like, we just don't understand this. This is so different, right? And the reality is that if, if the law we're talking about is just this sort of life-sucking, soul-sucking, dry-as-dust list of rules to obey, we will never delight in the law. We will never delight in God's instruction, uh, nor should we, if that's all it is. It's just a, bunch of, <laughs> just a bunch of rules to follow. Who wants to do that? But the good news that Psalm 1 teaches us here is that God's law, his instruction, is worth delighting in. And the reason is because we delight in the law because through the law we find him. We delight in the instruction of God because through his instruction he reveals who he is and we get to find him through his law. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, but just sort of as a, a, to put this out here a little bit ahead of time, uh, the way that the Bible talks about the law or the Torah is not just referring to the commandments. Do this, don't do that. If so-and-so does this, then this is the consequence. That, that's a part of the law, but the law is the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of stories in the law. And so it's not only the commands of God themselves that reveal something about who he is in his heart, The law includes the story of the Exodus, which tells us about God's delight and his joy in delivering a people from the hand of their oppressors. And so the instruction of God includes both the commandments of God as well as all of those stories and those narratives that reveal who God is. And this is why we find delight in the law, because God's instruction reveals who he is. We delight in God's instruction because he is worth delighting in. He is the source of all truth and all beauty and all goodness. As we look at the instruction of God and the law, as we, as we read the stories of God's working in history, we see a picture of a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, faithful, loyal love. A God who is abundant, a God who is generous, a God who is creative, a God who is a God of justice. We see all of this picture of who God is given to us in the law of God, and that's why we delight in the law, because the law reveals to us who our God is. And so, yes, we look at the law and we say, his instruction is good because it shows us the way to live best. And God's law does show us, if you want to have a good life, if you want to live life the best way you possibly can, you must follow my instructions. Life will go well for you if you live this way. So there's a kind of functional, uh, it's very functional, it's very sort of practical. But his instruction is not just functional or practical, his instruction is beautiful. Because we see not only what rules to follow, the instruction of God, the law of God reveals how we can possess him. That's what the end goal of the law is, is that we would possess and be in relationship with him. And the good news that the Bible teaches us is that he first took possession of us. Rewind the tape all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And what happened in that first sin was they listened to the voice of the serpent instead of listening to the voice of Yahweh. God had given them his instruction. Eat of any of the trees that you see here. Only of this one tree don't eat. 
God gave them his instruction that was to lead to their life and their flourishing. And they chose instead to listen to the voice of the serpent, which said, he doesn't love you. He's stingy. He's holding back on you. In order to be happy and satisfied and to truly flourish, here's the thing that you need to do for yourself. They listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of Yahweh. And as a result of that, the poison of sin was unleashed into the world, and our hearts have been wayward ever since. As we sang, even here this morning, prone to wander, that describes the condition of the human heart. You read the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards, and you see the disposition of the human heart to delight in something or someone besides God. That's the default position of our heart, is not to delight in him or his instruction, but to delight in other things. And it's led us down a path of ruin, and the good news is that God has made a way for us to experience deliverance from that. God has made a way for us to truly experience flourishing even in the midst of that. Move forward to the New Testament, and you see Jesus. Jesus is, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And we see Jesus is tempted to listen to the voice of the serpent. The same serpent that was there in Genesis 3, whispering into the ear of Eve that God doesn't love her, that his plans aren't good, is saying to Jesus, you know, you've been fasting for 40 days. Bet you're kind of hungry, huh? You could just turn some of these rocks into bread. Wouldn't that be really satisfying right now? Wouldn't you love that? And he says, you know, why don't you just go up to the highest point of the temple and just throw yourself down and, you know, you are the son of God, right? God the Father will send his angels to protect you and to preserve your life. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, if you just bow down to me, all this can be yours. And so as Jesus is in the wilderness, he is being tempted to listen to the voice of the serpent instead of listening to the voice of his father who spoke over him and said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. He was tempted to listen to the voice of the serpent and to circumvent, to go around the plans that God the father had set for him and to do things his own way, to do what was right in his own eyes instead of delighting in and listening to the voice of the father. And in every single way where Adam and Eve failed, they listened to the voice of the serpent. They delighted in something that was not from God. In the same way that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, chose to delight in other, other things besides God. In all the ways that both Adam and Eve and Israel failed, Jesus was victorious in the wilderness. He did not give in to the voice of the serpent who was tempting him. He went to the cross and he suffered and he died in our place. In the wilderness, Jesus went to battle with the serpent. And at the cross of Jesus, he dealt the death blow to the serpent. At the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent and in doing so made it possible for us to be restored into relationship with God because our sin the idolatry that exists inside of us, what that's done to us is it has separated us. It's made it so we can't be in the presence of God who is the source of all life. Apart from him, there is no life to be had. 
And our sin has separated us from him so that we are now living on the path towards destruction. And what Jesus' sacrifice, what him giving his life in place of ours did, was it cleansed us. It cleansed us of our sin. It cleansed us of the idolatry that exists inside of us so that we would be a fitting place for God himself to dwell through his Holy Spirit. And so we see Jesus cleanses us from our sin so that we can be once again in the presence of God who is the source of life. And so the law of God, the instruction of God is good because it leads us to see his character and we see that character most clearly on display in the person and the work of Jesus. And so there's a choice that's held out between listening to two voices here today for all of us. Will we be the kind of people who cultivate a life of listening to the voice of God through his instruction? Will we, as we talk about next week, will we delight in his law? Will we delight in his instruction for us? Or will we be people who listen to the voice of the crowd, who let people who reject God have an incredible amount of influence in our lives? Will we follow their path or will we follow the path towards flourishing? And that's the choice that's set out before each of us here today. As we come to the communion table, we get to come and remember what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. We see all of the, the goodness and the beauty of who God is most fully expressed to us in the person of Jesus. And we get to come forward and receive his broken body and his shed blood And we get to commune with him. We get to remember that the idolatry, the sin that had separated us from God, that had made us unclean, unable to be in his presence, that sin has been forgiven if you are in Christ. And so now we can experience union with him. We can experience communion with him. And so we get to do that here at the communion table. As you come forward today, I'd like to invite you just to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection as we come to the table today. Merciful God, we come before you today and we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you. We have not delighted in you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, O Lord, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are. And we pray that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.